blessings for the student body as a result of the abbreviated winter quarter and uh, one which has not yet surfaced as far as you are concerned is that I was scheduled to speak in the la next to the last chapel of the fall of the winter quarter it uh, was the feeling of some that with exams just around the corner with all the pressures that that entailed finishing off term papers that you probably would not be prepared for a particularly profound presentation in chapel and therefore I was asked to speak That has been uh, something of the story of my life, looking, <laughs> looking over at the seniors illustriously attired to my left. It reminds me that in my senior year of college, I had the privilege of uh, sharing a room with three other graduating seniors, one of whom graduated summa cum laude, uh, one of whom graduated magna cum laude, and one of whom graduated cum laude, and as I walked across the stage to receive my diploma, the academic dean said, Laude, how come? <laughs> Slow now. <coughs> I do have much to share with you this morning. I have prayed and thought in some detail about what I would like to share with you this morning. It's not what I anticipated I would share, but it is what God has placed upon my heart. I've given myself to, as best as possible, very serious study of the topic. And I would like to preface that with a reading of scripture. If you have an Old Testament with you, would you turn, first of all, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'd like to begin reading at the first verse. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter husband dislikes her and writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt upon the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. The second passage is from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19, and I shall begin reading with verse 3. 
Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and put her away. Jesus said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. It should be evident by now that I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of the biblical teaching on divorce. Until a few years ago, this was not an issue with which most Christians were immediately concerned. It was primarily an issue and a problem for unbelievers. And yet, I would feel safe in saying that more and more the problem of divorce and remarriage is becoming an issue with which Christians themselves find themselves involved. And so to that end, I would like to, in the time that I have, share with you what I consider to be some of the scriptures teaching on this particular point. What should be the course of events if and when wedlock becomes headlock or even deadlock? I have three main points that I want to make this morning. The first will be, what does the Old Testament say about it? The second will be, what did Jesus teach about it? And the third will be, what did Paul say about it? And we will look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, Matthew chapter 19, and 1 Corinthians, which I have not yet read, chapter 7. Well, there are a number of things that the, New, that the Old Testament says about divorce, but where it says it best is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And I have really a factual message to share with you this morning, and so let me say that basically the Old Testament, using Deuteronomy 24 as our example, teaches five things about the subject of divorce.
and let me share those five things with you. First is this, and I am simply taking the contents of Deuteronomy 24 and working my way through them. The first is this, that the law of Moses, the law of Moses which was addressed to believers, to Israelites, to those who were in a covenantal relationship with God, the law of Moses does not encourage divorce. It does not enjoin divorce. It does not approve it. But what it does do is to prescribe certain procedures if indeed divorce does take place. And that is what Deuteronomy 24 is about. What are the procedures for those living under the old covenant that are to be followed if indeed there comes an inevitable breakdown in marriage between husband and wife? Now, the second point in Deuteronomy 24 is this, that divorce was permitted on only one ground, one ground alone, and that is spelled out in verse 1 of chapter 24, which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes, now here comes the phrase, because he has found some indecency in her. Now that is the reading of the revised standard version. That a man could divorce his wife if he found in her some kind of indecency. The King James Version translates that uncleanness. Another Bible version translates that any impropriety. Another Bible version translates that it defines in his wife any improper behavior. Now, which is it? Is it indecency? Is it uncleanness? Is it any impropriety? Or is it improper behavior? The point is this, that the reason for divorce in the Old Testament is extraordinarily ambiguous. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible is wise not only in its revelations but also in its reservations? Can you appreciate the delightful ambiguities of Scripture? And no one is absolutely sure what this phrase means unless he finds some blank in his wife. Well, okay. Now there are two extreme positions that are given to that. At one extreme, 
with the interpretation that indecency or impropriety or improper behavior means sexual infidelity. Well, it may mean that, but I'll tell you one thing it cannot mean. It cannot mean adultery. Because the penalty for adultery was not divorce, which is what the penalty is here. The penalty for divorce was stoning. And so it can't be that. But may it be other kinds of sexual infidelity? Possibly so. At the other extreme, and this is the prevailing Jewish interpretation, by the way, both now and previously. And that is Moses encouraged, not encouraged, but permitted divorce of a man from his wife on almost any possible grounds. So that there is a famous rabbinical scholar by the name of Hillel, who said, using Deuteronomy 24 as a proof text, that a man could divorce his wife for burning his toast at breakfast. And other profound theological heavies. In other words, the prevailing tradition is that Moses permitted almost an open-door policy on divorce vis-a-vis -vis the husband. But if that is the case, it is interesting that there is not one recorded case in the entire Old Testament where any man sent his wife away lightly. On the contrary, you will recall that Abraham is depicted as resisting even the expulsion of his concubine, Hagar. But it's for this grounds, and whatever that means. Now there is a third teaching here in Deuteronomy 24. And it is this, that before the marriage, between a man and a wife could be dissolved, certain procedures had to take place. And there were two. The first one was this, that the husband had to provide the wife whom he was divorcing with a bill of divorce, a bill of divorce that had to be put into black and white. And the second condition is that the wife had to be formally sent out of her husband's house. Can you see the rationality behind those? You must issue her a statement in print, which will become document evidence, and you must formally send her forth from your house. The rationality for those two procedures is primarily to keep the husband from acting rashly in a moment of anger. This is something that could not be done on the spur of the moment. Whimsically, 
capriciously, but had to go through these procedures. And the fourth thing that Deuteronomy states is this, that the woman who was divorced could remarry. That is brought out very cleanly, plainly in the passage. That is to say, divorce dissolves a marriage. It is not separation, it is dissolution. And the fifth and the final point that Deuteronomy brings out is this, that the only marriage, the only remarriage which was banned was remarriage to a former husband. That is the only prohibition. That is to say, if a man divorces his wife, she is free to marry a second husband. If the second husband either dies or divorces her, she is free to marry a third husband, but she is not free to remarry her first husband. And again, can you not see the rationality behind that? It is to act as a restraint upon the husband. If you send her out, if you divorce her, she will never be yours again. You will have no second chance. And so therefore, think before you jump to conclusions and be absolutely certain that what you are doing is correct because you will have no way of correcting a mistake if you make one. Now those are the five teachings in Deuteronomy 24 and can be pursued by examining the rest of the Old Testament. Now, point number two. What did Jesus say about divorce? And here again, the classic passage. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And let me go through, as I did with Deuteronomy 24, and suggest to you that if I could crystallize the teachings of Jesus on divorce, he says these four things. The first thing is this, that Jesus fully endorsed the permanence of marriage. There was no equivocation at this point. He absolutely, without any kind of mitigation, through his support and his weight behind the permanence of marriage. And you will observe that Jesus, in chapter 19, verse 3, was asked a question about his views on divorce. You will notice how he responded to the question. He responded to the question not by talking about divorce, but by talking about marriage. And all views of divorce 
are to be determined by your view of marriage, which is actually what I should have said first before we started today. And so Jesus referred these Pharisees back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he said basically two things about Genesis 1 and 2. The first thing that Jesus said is this, that human sexuality is a divine creation. It is a divine creation. Male and female, he made them. And not only is human sexuality a divine creation, but Jesus also went on to affirm that human marriage is a divine ordinance. So he goes on to say in Matthew 9, uh, verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The phrase there literally means yoked shall be yoked to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so that is point number one, with which I think all of us as believers, if we are believers, must begin, that Jesus endorsed the permanence of marriage. Number two, it would be this, continuing through Matthew chapter 19, that Jesus declared the Mosaic provision for divorce, Deuteronomy 24, that he declared the Mosaic provision for divorce to be a concession to human sin. I underline the word, he accepted it as a concession to human sin. There is a world of difference between saying something is a command and something is a permission. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why then did Moses command? And Jesus said, hey, wait a minute, fellas. Moses didn't say anything about command, that this is an order. But he permitted it as a concession. It was to be an extreme solution to inescapable failure. It was not to be looked upon as an acceptable option. What is point number three? It is this, that Jesus called remarriage after divorce adultery. That is the plain sense of verse 9, if we may omit the middle part. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Plain statement, needing no qualification or any backup to it. What is the fourth? And I've left this to last because it's the most debated one of all, and it's the most debatable thing that I've shared with you yet this morning. And that is to say that also in chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus permitted divorce and remarriage on the sole ground 
of sexual immorality. Chapter 19, verse 9 reads in the Revised Standard Version, And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity, unchastity. The King James Version reads that, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication. All right. So that's the fourth teaching of Jesus, that there was one ground and one ground alone, that a man could not divorce his wife except for the case of, and the Greek word is porneia, the word from which we get our word pornograph or pornography, except for porneia. A man could not divorce his wife. But let me quickly make two qualifications to that statement. Because I find that in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, and in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus is quoted again, except with one difference. And do you know what the difference is? The exception clause is omitted. In Luke 8.16 and Mark 10, Jesus is viewed as simply saying, and I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife commits adultery. No exception clause. Now why does Matthew put it in? Or why do Mark and Luke leave it out? Why the addition in one sense and the omission in the other two places? Well, I could keep you here until 12 o'clock giving you, giving you all the suggestions that have been made to account for the differences. Let me give you the the one which I think is correct, which fortuitously happens to be mine. No messianic complex about you, Hamilton. Well, let me give you two possibilities as to why in Matthew the exception clause and why in Luke and Mark no exception clause. One reason, I believe, is that Mark and Luke are silent about the exception clause because they took it for granted. It was an obvious truism that did not have to be repeated. There wasn't a person of any religious orientation in the days of Jesus who did not believe that adultery, for instance, was a legitimate ground for divorce. Let me give you a second possibility, and here I've chosen my words correctly because this is my present feeling on the subject. I do not pertain or suggest that I have all the answers. 
I like E. Stanley Jones one time, response to the question, Brother Stanley, are you a Christian? He said, no, I'm a Christian in the making. And uh, am I a theologian? No, but I hope I'm a theologian in the making. Now, my reasoning would be this. Could it not be that on the two occasions reported by Mark and Luke, that is, no exceptions, that what Jesus was doing here, or perhaps let me start vice versa and follow what I've got here, that in Matthew, where you have the exception clauses, both in Matthew 19 and back in the Sermon on the Mount that we are looking at, that Jesus was facing the realities of a fallen world. Yes, ideally, marriage should be permanent, but looking at the realities of a fallen world, Jesus disclosed the one exception which intrinsically destroys the marriage bond. And therefore, he alters the basic principle. Whereas, on the other hand, what you have in Matthew, or rather in Mark and in Luke, is a statement of the ideal. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean, if that's not clear, and it probably isn't. Do we not sometimes, and Asbury College is a good illustration of this, do we not sometimes state a principle in its purest intent? An absolute statement in the rule book, for instance, or in the college catalog, or so forth. Do we not sometimes state a principle in its purest intent but elsewhere, we state that same principle in terms of allowable exceptions in view of extenuating circumstances which were not originally envisioned. There is a rule, for instance, to the effect that if you miss a certain percentage of classes, you lose credit for the course. Let's take that as an illustration. However, there are instances, that's the ideal. If you miss a certain percentage, that's the ideal. But then there are extenuating circumstances that appear which allows us to modify the rule somewhat and to put in an exception clause which is thoroughly legitimate in light of the circumstances. And I believe that that is the reason why Jesus in one instance adds the exception and in the others he does not.